everyone. I hope you all had a nice lunch. Did you have a nice lunch? Had some good food? Did you eat on campus or you go off campus? On campus, that's good. You brought your own lunch, that's good too. They're awesome. I ate off campus with my wife. My wife and I ate off campus, but you know, everything is so close here. I mean, you drive up the main street to Waynesville, it's, it's just so close. And it's just, uh, it's good to be here once again, isn't it? It is so good to be here at camp meeting and to hear such wonderful speakers and people sharing the word of God. We have an opportunity to hear another good speaker today with Tony Moore, who's going to be sharing with us. And this should be a very interesting one here that he's sharing, when Abram became Abraham. And Many of us are familiar with the story, but the, the beautiful thing about these presentations that Tony is doing, he fills in a lot of the gaps and understandings about where it was happening and, and so forth. And it's kind of nice to, to have that information. So when you're reading the Bible, you'll think about what Tony Moore has shared with us today when you open up the Word of God. So let's begin with a word of prayer and ask God's blessings on our time together, blessings on Tony and blessings on us as we... Uh, hear what he has to share with us this afternoon. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful place that you've given us, uh, Lake Junaluska, Lord, to come apart for a while, to uh, meditate, to rest, to pray, Lord, to have community, to hear the word of God shared, to learn more about uh, how uh, your people showed up in the world, dear Father. Bless Tony today as he shares with us from Abram to Abraham. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to welcome Tony up. Need, uh, is it easier if I'm up on the platform? Let's, can you help me put that? This weighs about 100 pounds. I need something to put my, my uh, phone on. There's no, there's no uh, clock in here, so I can't tell what time it is without my phone. It's already 3 o'clock. No, 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 you can put it off on the side anywhere. I just want to have somewhere I can get to my phone every now and then. Okay. You can put it out to the front there if you want. Okay. okay, thanks. Is that good? Yeah, that'd be fine. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, good afternoon. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. I uh, got lunch today. I missed lunch the last couple of days, so I thought I was so hungry by the time the cafeteria finally opened yesterday that I better go and try and get something this afternoon. We have a few more things out here on the table. I'll just I put the table down so you can get up, and if you want to take pictures of some of the artifacts, you can do that. And uh, there's actually some very nice Roman glass here. This is a beautiful one. It's got a nice little handle on it, right? And uh, we saw the tear bottle yesterday. This one's kind of cool because it's uh, what you may not use, but it uh, was a uh, looks like two uh, test tubes with the little handles, but it's actually what you might keep your makeup in. And so they find little tiny spoons with dried makeup in there because that's what the ladies would have for their makeup. So anyway, very interesting. I saw this one and just wondered what had happened because they were blowing it and they had all the nice little things. They got the little handle on to start that and they never broke off the bottom piece. And so it was still that way. So what happened? Was it a war? I don't know what happened. Why did it get stopped? But I uh, saw that and I said, that's pretty cool. I better get that. So uh, we have that. 
we have some of the other things that are, were up here before. There's also a little Passover cup. I, I, these are things I take on the plane. I left my big case of artifacts at home. Do you remember how many pieces of pottery were in that place that I was suggesting was Sodom, Babadraw? Three million pieces of pottery, 500,000 dead people buried there. So there's a lot of pottery from the early Bronze Age, more than some other ages, right? And so I've got nice bowls and lamps and all that kind of stuff, but unfortunately I didn't bring it, I didn't think about showing you artifacts, but this is on the plane. Anyway, this is a Passover cup, it's not really old. On one side it's got Jerusalem, on the other side it's got a menorah, and it says in Hebrew, blessed are you, Lord God, for you bring forth the fruit of the vine. And of course we think next year in Jerusalem, but did you notice what happened this year to Jewish people? Next year in Kiev, right? Because of the war, they were out of their homes. So kind of an interesting thing for them as they were selling, bringing pass over there. I'll go ahead and share a couple of these little things here. This is a, has some biblical coins. You might like to look at these afterward. This one happens to be a shekel, but not just any shekel. It's called a tire shekel. In that part of the world, they would say a tear shekel because Tyre had the purest silver on the market, so it's 96% pure. So while they had to change, the money changers had to change their money for this particular piece of shekel. And so this would pay for two people who would uh, be able to pay their temple tax if you were a male, 20 years or older. So remember the one day they asked Peter, does your master pay the temple tax? And what did Peter say? Yeah. Well, sure. And what did Jesus say? Hey, if I'm the master of the temple, why do I pay the tax? Remember? And what did he tell Peter to do? Catch a fish. Go out and catch a fish, right? And there in the mouth was a temple shekel, right? So anyway, there's a temple shekel you can check. And uh, it's by weight, four days wages. This is a typical shekel, just a regular shekel. So we think about this because the lady had how many? How many did that lady have? Ten. She lost one and looked, because it was valuable, this would stand for four days wages. So it was very valuable. And she swept the floor and used her little lamp until she found it. So that's a regular shot. And by the way, another guy got 30 pieces of this. All right. That's a bad story. And uh, let's see what else I have here. Here's a, a half shekel. So you'd pay a half shekel. You'd pay a half shekel as a temple tax for a male. So that's half the weight. And again, you can look at these afterward. And, uh, and then this is actually a Greek drachma. This is Alexander the Great. And the key is, if his feet are crossed, he's dead. If his feet are alive, when it was minted, his feet are side by side. So you can come up and figure out if he's dead or alive <laughs> when that coin was minted, right? And then there's a few little shekels. Which one do I want to show you? Got a bunch of denarii here from different periods. And... Uh, one day they were trying to trap Jesus, remember? Asking a bunch of questions. And uh, they said, should we pay taxes or not to Rome? And what did he say? Yeah. Does anybody have a coin? Does anybody have a penny? Does anybody have a denarius? And then whose image is on it? Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. So I got some here from Augustus and Tiberius and different Caesars. He would have had probably the one from Tiberius because he was kind of the reigning seizure at that time. And then there's four little coins here. These are kind of interesting. I'm just going to put out two for you to look at. 
These are called the leptons. Lepton means the thin ones because they're the thinnest coins made. They're out of copper. And of course, you know them as a widow's mite. 128 of these in one day's wage or one denarius. So 1 64th of a day's wage. And Jesus said she gave more money than anybody else that day. And the disciples were blown away, remember? And then there's one more coin up here that I'm going to tell you about. I've got a bunch of other coins, but one I want to tell you about. This is an interesting one because it's broken. It's not interesting because of that. But it's a Bar Kokhba coin. Have you ever heard of Bar Kokhba? Anybody ever hear of Bar Kokhba? What? Okay, some of my friends have heard about Bar Kokhba. So after the temple's destroyed in AD 70 by Titus, remember, there's no temple. What did Jews do? Fair question. No temple for sacrifice. What are you going to do? A rabbi emerges by the name of Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. He invents modern Judaism. By the way, this is not in the scope of tonight's, today's topic, but anyway, I'm on a roll, so I'm going to tell you about it. The, uh, there are basically four groups of Jews, correct, when the temple is destroyed? You have Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and the Bible talks about the Zealots, and then the Bible also talks about some Herodians, but we're not going to really get into that group. And uh, so you have these basic groups. Well, the Sadducees run the temple, so when the temple's destroyed, they're done, right? Zealots, they're all done. They, they end up on Masada, they're all finished. So you end up with actually two groups of, of Jews left. You have Pharisees, and then you have another group called the Way, right? The believers in Jesus, the Nazarenes. The Nazarenes compete with the, with the Pharisees, and as best I can tell, one out of three Jews at the end of the first century had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Jews are very, very threatened by this. So Rabbi Akiva merges Phariseeism into modern Judaism. Now you can't, you can't sacrifice anymore, so they substitute prayer for sacrifice. And so modern Judaism is Phariseeism. And they do some other interesting things. Well, anyway, this guy in 132 AD, Rabbi Akiva, anoints a guy named Simon bar as Simon bar Kokhba, the son of the stars in the prophecy of Balaam, and anoints him as Messiah. Puts him on a white horse, we're told, and leads him through Jerusalem as Messiah. He leads a revolt against Rome. Rome doesn't like that very much. They've been troubled by the Jews a couple of times. A guy named Hadrian comes down totally destroys you. It doesn't just destroy Jerusalem like Titus. He raises it to bedrock, scrapes it, scrapes it, and then bans Jews from going to Jerusalem or they'll be killed right away. By the way, who else couldn't go to Jerusalem? The Nazarenes because they were a sect of the Jews, right? So anyway, this is our Bar Kokhba coin and then this is actually my antiquities dealer is a good friend. He's a Somebody has been talking to me about Aramaic. You were talking to me about Aramaic at breakfast this morning. He's the head of the Aramaic-speaking church, or the Syrian Orthodox Church in Jerusalem. And uh, Joseph uh, had this on consignment from a member of the Knesset, and I was able to purchase it at a high price. But uh, anyway, it's broken, so it's a Bar Kokhba coin. So it, it goes back to that time period. So, by the way, it's very important because it causes the believers in Jesus to try and distinguish themselves from 
Jews. I'm going to roll. I'm going to tell you one more story. Is that okay? This is, by the way, this is all in the Jesus series, everything I'm telling you. When did, when did Jesus die? Sorry? Okay, we got the year right. What day? Friday. When, did he write, when was he raised from the dead? But what day was it? What, no, 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 no. What day did Jesus die on? What day of the month did he die on? The 14th of Nisan, right? He dies on the 14th. The offering of the wave sheep is on the 16th. It rose to the week like your birthday, right? That year was a, a high Sabbath. So I believe the Bible says that Jesus dies on Friday, which is also the 14th. There's an annual Sabbath and a weekly Sabbath. They coincide. And then on the 16th, there's the offering of the way sheaf, right? On Sunday, and he raises, he's raised from the dead, and he takes people with him to heaven. All fits, right? So what day do early Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, celebrate the, resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus? Early Christians celebrated on the 14th. So when Romans look, they see you as a Jew celebrating Passover on the 14th, and they see you the Jewish Christian celebrating the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus on the 14th, and they say you're one and the same. Make sense? So anti-Semitism arises that leads the Jewish believers in Jesus to try and distinguish themselves from the Jews who keep Passover. It's called the Quarter Decimal Controversy. You can Google it this afternoon. It's a fascinating read to read about this early controversy in early Christianity and how they try and, and move, especially as the church moves from being Jewish to becoming more Gentile. And so in Roman Alexandria, they choose a date that will rarely, if ever, coincide with the 14th and the 16th. And it was called the Festival of Ishtar, the first Sunday after the full moon, after the spring equinox, the Festival of Ishtar. And we've anglicized it into Easter. Okay? Now, don't go bopping people over the head with that. But it, you know, we, we, we usually. I'm going to assume most of you are Adventists, we often take the easy way of saying Constantine changed it. No, he validated what was going on. It has its roots actually in anti-Semitism from the second century with this desire to get away from the Jewish people. So the Church of the East continued to celebrate the crucifixion and resurrection on the 14th, but the Church of the West adopted the festival of Ishtar and ultimately after the Muslims attacked the Church of the East and so on, the church moves over to the other side, and uh, that's become the dominant thing. However, when you go to Jerusalem, and I do teaching tours in Jerusalem, as long as I'm able to, and uh, the interesting thing is the, the old sites are not Roman Catholic sites that I refer to as the Latins. When, did the Latin, when does the Latin church come to Jerusalem? Anybody know? It's an event called the Crusades. The church is actually Orthodox. It's an Orthodox church. Not Jewish Orthodox, but Greek Orthodox, because they spoke the Greek language or they spoke the you know, Arabic in the Palestinian world. And so most of the old, old sites are that. What happens, the Roman Catholics come during the Crusades and they build churches next door to that, so you'll often find competing sites, which confuses friends that I bring there, because well, they have all these different sites. Well, the older sites are usually go back to the Orthodox church. Anyway, I don't know how I got onto all of that, sharing these coins, I suppose. But that's all on the Jesus series. 
Should I tell you one more thing? Yeah. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> There's an interesting prayer. Did we talk about, I think yesterday I talked about what's the mezuzah, the Shema, yeah. the most important prayer in Judaism. Jesus prayed that prayer at least twice a day, if not three times a day. Second most important prayer is called the Amidah, or the 18. They had 18 prayers they'll pray every day for morning worship. Right? They add a 19th during the same time with the Kiva. And the 19th, I can, I'd have to dig it out of the manual over here, basically says you have to stand up in the synagogue and curse the Nazarene. Yes. So what does that do? It pushes the believers in Jesus out of the synagogues. And this is where the break happens. And that's done by Rabbi Akiva. I'll, I'll give you a little quote tomorrow. I'm going to probably throw it up on the screen for you. It's all in the Jesus series, by the way, especially in the manual. We don't get into a lot of those details up front, but in the manual you'll get those little details. Is it easier if I'm up here or down here? Up there? Okay. More of you can see. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter to me. I'm comfortable anywhere once I get started. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, we mentioned about our, our seminars. Somebody asked me about some sales. And in, if you buy stuff down at the ABC, come and we'll send you some extra sets of lessons if you give me your name and address. The ABC, I'm having them handle the sales down there. We want you to use these for seminars because what I just shared with you is... is very shareable with your neighbors and friends, or you can do it in your church. So you ask about the tours, that is the website, biblicalworld.org slash tour, or you can just do the little menu thing on tours. The only one that's active right now is the world, the uh, Egypt and the Bible uh, this fall, because I'm kind of booked up with pastor's tours next spring. I try and only go to Israel in March, if I can help it, because it's nice and green like Southern California, and uh, it's nice and cool, and it doesn't rain a lot, and I'm spoiled now. I've been there in July too many times. By the way, in July, I can tell you this, we were filming in July. Most interesting thing down at the temple one day is we, were, we had seven one-month film trips for the Jesus series. We were filming. Everybody's laying around on the ground. The Western Wall, the men, you know, there's a... By the way, are, is this an Orthodox group here? Doesn't matter what you believe. You know what Orthodox means? Separated. So the fact that men and women are sitting together, you're not Orthodox. Doesn't matter what you believe, okay? So anyway, the, the Orthodox men are over on this side, and they're all laying around. And somebody will read something, and then, Bleh! Somebody else will read something, Bleh! They're reading Lamentations about the temple being destroyed. Conveniently destroyed on the same day by Nebuchadnezzar and by Titus. The only day you can actually film, so we got a lot of film of them going, ha very, very sad, and, uh, and so on. But anyway, uh, why I told you that, I don't know. But uh, biblicalworld.org is our website, and uh, you can get the material we're sharing. It's coming out of our new series. I'm going to put this back so don't trip on it. You can get our new series uh, down at the ABC, or you can order it online. It's also available via digital membership. It's only on Blu-ray or digitally streaming, and uh, we have the beautiful study guides that you can look at and see. And we're quite happy with what has happened. Our next series is World of the Exodus. I'm hoping to have that release this fall. We filmed it before COVID. I'm on the last episode for the, uh, the major edit. And uh, then the World of the Kings, we've been shooting the background for that. So the Jesus series, I just want to take a moment and give you a little commercial on that. 28 programs filmed on the Bible lands, the early years in ministry. You'll never find that picture. My, 
uh, graphic artist, put together the Jordan River and the Judean Desert. And it doesn't flow out of the desert like that, but you will find this picture. And so you can see the beautiful flowers in the spring, which is why I go in the spring and not in the fall, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Another one, Teachings and Controversies, wonderful stuff in that, that volume uh, with the tiered jar and the alabaster jar and so on. And then the final one, the last week of Jesus' life, is Jerusalem and Beyond. So you'd like to see just, a, I'm going to just show you a little one-minute clip here in the beginning, get a feel for what it's like. There'll be a little audio with this. In this wonderful series, Tracing the Footsteps of Jesus, we shall explore the historical context and the cultural setting of the world in which he lived. Olive Press. We will travel to Bethlehem where he was born and to Nazareth where he grew up. We will visit the Jordan River where he was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We will then return to Galilee where he performed his first recorded miracle in Cana when he turned the water into wine. From Cana, we will go down to the shore of Galilee and the town of Capernaum where over one third of Jesus' recorded miracles took place. Then we will travel to Jerusalem, where Jesus taught in the temple, prayed in a garden, was crucified, and ultimately rose from the dead. In this fascinating series, the life and times of Jesus will come to life in a vivid way on the screen and in your syllabus. As we walk many of the roads that he walked and climb many of the mountains that he climbed, you will become familiar with the world that Jesus knew. As you take this journey, tracing the footsteps of Jesus, you will be able to identify the places where he taught and performed miracles, and your reading of the gospel story will never be the same. So we will just kind of skip over this next one, and because I told you a lot of stories to begin with. The whole purpose of this series is to, make, is, is to allow you to have a nice tool to share with your neighbors and your church to share with your community the life of Jesus. People always ask me about how the Bible doctrines tie into it. I'll show you a couple of examples of that tomorrow in our little preamble, if that's okay. But I better get going and skip over that one and get into today when Abram became Abraham. So we looked at this yesterday. As the years passed, Abram wondered if those guys would return. The, that is the Babel kings. God says, I'm going to be with you. I'll be your shield. And it's reassuring. But he says, Elijah's going to inherit everything I have. I don't have any kids. And then we see this monumental thing, go out and count the stars. And then verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham or Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. We talked about how that's the basis of righteousness by faith. Paul will take that and build his teachings on it. It's the crucial text for that and for Paul's theology. So we want to go on from that. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave you this land to take possession of it. How can I know? We talked about the covenant. So we're going to skip by all this and how God cut a covenant. After 10 years, however, he's still waiting in the for this promise to be fulfilled. And what's the problem? God had said he'd have a son, but did not say through whom it would be. So now we jump into today's presentation. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So what does Sarah want to do? He, she wants to do something, what, what does it say? She wants to build a family through her. What do we call that? 
a surrogate. She wants Hagar to be a surrogate to have a child so that she can have a child that she can raise, correct? All right. So we think about Abraham and Sarah. They've now gone back from Egypt, and there's anxiety. Ten years has passed, and God said you're going to have a son, and there's no son coming, and there's anxiety in the house, and just imagine the time when they're gathering around the table, and there's tension because Abram's thinking, you know, all my brothers, they got a bunch of kids. It must not be me, it must be you, right? I can just imagine Abram's probably, uh, you guys aren't going to like me after this. He's probably just, you know, saying, you know, Sarah, maybe we should follow the custom of our land. Blame? I don't know, is that too human to suggest? My relatives have children. Perhaps you're the problem, Sarai. So chapter 16 is very interesting, verses 1 to 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his, I'm sorry, wife, right? To be his wife. So the Mesopotamian customs we now know from the Nuzi said if a woman was barren, she could choose a surrogate for her husband to have a child, and that child would become the heir unless she later had a child herself. So ladies, who chose? The woman. I'm sure they go out and look for the most beautiful woman they could find, don't you think? I don't think so, you know. I'm sure they're still a little insecure with this arrangement, don't you think? So she decides to have a surrogate to help. Now, the Newsy Tablets, this is a, a town, uh, they found just a whole trove of these cuneiform tablets, and they explained that this was the law in Mesopotamia. If she later became pregnant, however, the law was clear that her heir would be the one to inherit. So the law said the wife could choose a surrogate. So who does she choose? Where is she from? Why Egypt? Why Hagar? I got a feeling, reading between the lines, that she's throwing it into Abram's face. You tried to sell me as a dowry down there. You tried to dump me down there. I'm going to give you this one to remind you of that less than ideal time when you didn't perform properly down in Egypt. Hope I'm not being too human for you. She's from Egypt. Was it not so? Was Abram actually saying, you know, the law in our land says, you know, we need to speed this process up. Now, why do I think that? Well, the Bible says in verse 4, he slept with Hagar, she conceived. That confirms that Sarah's the problem, correct? Now God's promise can be fulfilled to Abram, right? He's got his heir, things are hunky-dory, it's going to move on. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are, re- you are responsible, Right? That leads me to suppose that Abram's probably the one suggesting all of this at the dinner table, right? You're the one who's responsible for all of this, all the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you over this, right? So Abram clearly has responsibility in what's going on. We often just say Sarah does it. But I think that Abram's probably suggesting this along the way to work out God's promises. So how is Abram responsible? Was, was it just deflection from Sarah? Or more, I think that phrase, may the Lord judge between me and you, tells us. Verse 6, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. 
do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Oh, my goodness. Now, I have to tell you, that's hard, isn't it? You're trying to witness. We're taking Abram and Sarah to be, Abram and Sarah to be witnesses, right? They're trying to witness and, and, and evangelize people. This girl comes in. She's in the family. Sarah uses her as a surrogate to raise a child. And things don't go well, and now she mistreats her. How would you feel? Does that ever happen in your church, by the way? When people join your church and people who should know a whole lot better are harsh toward others, they should be more sympathetic toward? How does Hagar relate to this? Well, here's what the law says for Mesopotamia. If later that female slave has claimed equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her, but she may mark her with the slave mark and count her among the slaves. So, they can't sell her, but they can put her back into the slave ranks. That's the law from the land they came from. Okay? So they're kind of tracking with the law. Now, it's very interesting. Hagar is probably not her real name because in Arabic it means flight, runaway. Because she runs away, right? That kind of makes sense. She, she flees. What's her birth name? We really don't know. But she was used as a surrogate, and now she's abused by her mistress, and she runs away into the desert. And there she cries out to Abram's God. In spite of what's happened to her, she still reaches out to Abram's God. That's pretty amazing to me, to be honest. I was really totally mistreated in a church by people in the church that should know better. It's kind of often we go away and we don't come back, right? happens all the time, so that's why we want to be careful. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Isn't that beautiful? So she's out there, she's run away, she's crying, she's lost, she's young, she's pregnant, and the Lord appears to her. He hears her crying. He names her unborn child. What was it? Ishmael means El hears. God's heard my prayer. Well, sometimes we write off Hagar and Ishmael. We have to be a little bit more careful in that because God's answering her prayer and naming her child that I've heard your prayer. So I just want to tell you, no matter what you go through, always remember God hears. As a matter of fact, she does something dramatic. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And she gave him the name El Roy. The God who sees. Isn't that precious? So no matter what you're going through, whether it's justified or unjustified, God sees. And by the way, she's the only person in scripture to give deity a personal name. And she's Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, right? So God loves us no matter what we go through is what I'm trying to share with you. No matter who your mommy and daddy are, no matter what your background, God reaches out his love to each and every one of us, just as he did to Hagar, and I believe just as he did to Ishmael. Verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So this is 11 years after he's been in the land. 86 years old, he finally has his heir. Question, did Sarah raise Ishmael as her son? 
I disagree with you. I say yes. I'm going to build my family through this woman. As far as she's concerned, we're following the law of the land. This is what's going to work. I've, just, I've never been included in the plan. So I think she raises him as her son. I think that they, they dote on this boy. They pour every bit of resource into this boy because he's the heir. And for the next 13 years, he will be the heir. Is that right? They even probably call him Prince, don't you think? Shamir, uh, Sharif. However, put yourself in Sarah's place for a moment. Was she tortured? What do you think she's thinking every day as she's changing that boy's diapers, if they wore diapers, whatever they wore, I don't know what they, as she's taking care of him. What do you think she's thinking? Why couldn't I get pregnant? Why does it have to work out this way? You know, today we have people who have children through surrogates, right? They, they, adopt, they take them in, they raise them as their own. I think that's what's going on here. So every day she's reminded of her barrenness. For the next 13 years this plays out. Ishmael's raised as the prince to take over the family business. Abraham puts everything into his son. Can you imagine? Now you're going to see some very unusual texts in just a moment that I think will bear this out for you. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. God Almighty proclaimed his name as El Shaddai. Shad is breast. And so every time we read this, almost in the Bible, it's about fertility or a birth coming, right? So we're getting a kind of a hint that something's going to happen here. I'm the one who, who, who has fertility and birth and blessing. Now, it's interesting. He's not like Noah or Enoch who are walking with the Lord or with God. He's walk, you walk before me. So it's almost like God's a shepherd <laughs> pouring Abraham how to go. Uh, please don't think any less of me about Abram here. But he's walking in front of God, and God's guiding him. Now, chapter 17 of Genesis, verses 4 and 5. You'll be the father of many nations. Oh, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. So Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many right? So now you're not going to just be the father of Ishmael, you're going to be the father of many, and there are going to be many nations that come from you. Pretty good news. So God promises to make him fruitful. As an outward sign, God says, I want you to circumcise yourself and every male in your community. How old is he? 99. So Jewish people try and do it on the eighth day, right? They don't remember it. Muslims do it around 12. But, uh, so he does that. Paul notes how that Abram was declared righteous before he was circumcised. So he becomes the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Right? Now verse 15 of chapter 17. As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, for her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will give, surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that you will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So the first time... We have in scripture the promises focusing on Sarai. Sarai means my princess. So Abraham was always saying, my princess, my darling, right? My princess. Get the picture? Sarah means the princess. It won't just be for Abram. It'll be for everybody. She's the princess, the mother of princes. You know? Right? She'll be special for all people. So after 24 years of uncertainty, God clarifies Sarah's role in equal portion of the promise, but it's hard to believe, isn't it? So what does Abraham do in verse 17? 
He fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Where Sarah bare a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, what? If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. What? That's what it says. Abram's satisfied. He's, he, you know, he's, he's been working on this deal for 24 years, right? He's got a son who's now 13. He says, it's okay. Just let Ishmael be your, under, your, under your blessing, God. You don't, have to, you don't have to tease me anymore about any of this. It's okay. You know, I've gotten over the disappointment. Try not to let my heart be too hardened over all this, right? Abram fell face down and laughed. If only Ishmael might live in your blessing. Now, that's the first time laughter is mentioned in the Bible, by the way. And he's thankful for the promise. Is, he, is that why he's laughing? God's giving me this promise. I'm really thankful for it. Maybe. Is he skeptical of the promise? Ha, 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 ha. How will this happen? When, uh, probably more like it, isn't it? Yeah. A hundred years old and 90 years old. I hear him saying, it's okay. We've worked hard. We're all content. Ishmael, he's pretty sharp. We think he can carry on after I'm, I'm gone. He'll keep the family farm going, the family business going. Just let Ishmael live under your blessing. God responds, yes, I'll bless Ishmael. God blessed Ishmael, by the way. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Yes, I'll bless Ishmael. But Sarah is the one through whom the covenant will come. Sarah is the one through whom the Messiah will be delivered. Sarah is the one who will have the spiritual boy. His other relatives had kids. God circles back and says, yes, I will bless him. I will make Ishmael fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah, Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So God's very specific. Ishmael is going to be a blessing, but the blessing is going to come through Sarah's child, right? My knowledge will be preserved and spread through Isaac's line. So it's a reconfirmation of the promise made to Mother Eve. So we can often feel abused, and mistreated even by religious people who should know better. But like Ishmael, like Sarah, we need to, I'm sorry, like Hagar, we need to remember God's name is Elroy, the God who sees what we're going through. He not only saw the Egyptian handmade surrogate run away, he sees you as well. So life has its ups and downs, doesn't it? But we need to learn to trust, even like Hagar learned to trust. And God will bless when we're resigned like Sarah. So our heart has to say we're going to be surrendered to the Lord and follow no matter what happens, right? We don't know the end from the beginning, and we need to, to learn to follow as our shepherd guides us. Now, we said that Abraham's territory was along the mountain road. He came into the land in Shechem. He went down by Bethel, passed by Salem, went down past Hebron, and went down to Beersheba. This is his runway. This is where he's going to go back and forth. He's going to actually go down to the crossroads below Beersheba on your map. And uh, he'll go down there. Now, verse 18, chapter 18 of Genesis, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram, Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So here he's going to be at Hebron on the mountain road. And 
the Lord appears. Verse 2, Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all, may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abram hurried, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So hospitality is the key virtue in this part of the world, right? They come by and he prepares this wonderful meal for them. What food was served, by the way? Bread. We don't like this in veal. And milk and cheese, right? Get that, fat, that, that young calf and prepare it. Now, this is very interesting. Very interesting because who's in the group? Yeah, the Lord's in the group, right? Well, it's interesting. Now, on my tours, I take, we go by a Bedouin interpretive center between Beersheba and the backside of Masada. And this is one of my groups while we're having this luncheon. And I'm putting this picture up here because we listen to Bedouins tell stories and they make some mint tea or some other kind of tea and some coffees and different things if you want to indulge. And then we eat with them. But the guy tells stories. And one day, the guy's telling a story about Bedouin culture and he says, men never cook. So of course, you know, Tony, why is that? Because Abraham entertained angels unaware. <laughs> if there's guests, I'm sorry, we never cook unless there's guests, I'm sorry. And I said, why is that? He said, because Abraham entertained angels unaware. If there's a guest, it just might happen to be an angel, <laughs> and we wouldn't want our wives to cook for the angels. I said, you guys haven't changed in all these years. Anyway, he actually said that to our group. It was so funny. We have a nice little meal with them, and you can kind of see as they sit around. Abraham was a Bedouin who moved around with tents, following his herds up and down that mountain road all those years. He was wealthy. God blessed him. Over 50% of the world today trace their roots to that spiritual man named Abraham, who was a Bedouin watching sheep on those hills. But my question is, he served them milk and curds and veal. How does that harmonize with kosher law and Judaism? Are right, you familiar what goes on? Don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. So when you go to Jerusalem, Warren, there were two sets of plates in the hotel. You stayed in, in the, uh, if I remember right, the uh, Grand Hotel. At breakfast, there's a set of plates because they have milk and fish. At dinner, there's a different set of plates because they have meat and there's no milk and there's no cheese and there's nothing in the, no dairy in the desserts. That's why they don't taste very good. And, uh, and they have two sets of plates because they follow kosher law. But how could it be Abraham serves the angels Meat and milk at the same meal. Very interesting. So the guests say, where's your wife, Sarah? Well, there in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Abram's already heard this in the previous chapter, but Sarah hasn't heard this, right? That's Genesis 18, verses 9 and 10. So immediately they realize these are not ordinary visitors. There's something special. 
It goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 18 of Genesis, Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Notice the Lord has got those small caps. Have you ever noticed that in the Old Testament? Most of your Bibles will have capital L, small o, small r, small d, and sometimes you see it spelled this way, capital L, small capital O, small capital R, small capital D. That's telling you when it's Yahweh. Jews won't say Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, or Jehovah, depending on which vowels you use. So they would say Adonai, and that's when it's the small o, small r, small d, right? So here it's saying, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she did what? Lied to the Lord. Can you imagine? Come on, ladies. Wow, I didn't laugh. <laughs> yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. So where was Sodom? On our map, can you see Hebron? If you look straight across the Dead Sea, you can kind of see there's some rivers going in, and then you can see that little funny, funny thing is called the tongue sticking out. Now in Abraham's time, the tongue was very, it was a very dry period, so they could actually, the tongue divided the Dead Sea into two different seas, the upper and the lower. The lower is very shallow, upper is very deep, and so they could actually walk across. So there's that Babadraw, which we were suggesting is biblical Sodom. And you can actually look from Hebron. I'm there often, and I look across, and I can see Babadraw and the surrounding areas very clearly. So Abraham's able to look across to see where Lot lived. Now, yesterday we suggested a little bit about this, why Lot moved to this side. That's a beautiful picture of the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side, and it's kind of driving along the Dead Sea Highway. And you see a lot of these acacia trees, and it's pretty, pretty deserty until you come to where the springs are. So there are actually five cities that develop right along there. You can see them on the map. And Babadraw is means gate of the arm, and that was the largest city. This is where they, we believe Sodom was. So Genesis chapter 14, we read this yesterday. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. We looked at those springs of Mayin, so desolate, but the springs are coming out. And where the springs are, with the hot weather, it just is a, like a Garden of Eden. It just grows wonderfully. By the way, wouldn't that be a great place to go and relax? Is that well, those waterfalls fall down into the swimming pools? So we can see these five cities. We can see the road down there. This is, uh, this is Numeria, very close to, uh, to that. And so here we can kind of see the plains where they've got water. And it's very, very rich soil. And this is uh, Al-Sophi. We believe this would probably be Zor that was not destroyed. Okay. So from Hebron, you can look across the Dead Sea and see this. So, conversation continues, verse 17 of chapter 18 of Genesis. Then the Lord said, should I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Who's speaking, by the way? The Lord, all right? Yahweh. The Lord said, the cries against Sodom and Gomorrah are very great. Their sin is so bad that I will go down and see for myself. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing in front of the Lord. So the two angels leave and they go to cross over to Sodom. The Lord stays. Abraham's immediately concerned because his nephew Lot had moved there in Genesis chapter 13. 
Remember? Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan. Lot lived among the cities of the plain near Sodom. But what's happened now? He's moved into Sodom, right? So he was there near. Now it says that the people of Sodom were wicked and they were sinning greatly against the Lord, Genesis 13, 13. So what was their sin? You think it's black and white? Sorry? Injustice. Okay. And what we think of as homosexuality. I'm just going to go ahead and say, say the elephant in the room. And, uh, and so it's very black and white for many people, uh, as we know, and many of our associates here, especially in North Carolina. Or is it more nuanced? Okay, well, let's explore that. Verse 23 and 24. I'm going to share something that might be very illuminating in just a moment on this. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Now, Lot's been there for 20 years. What kind of a witness do you think he had? Abraham thinks at least 50 people believe, right? And he's been there for 50 years. At least, you know, 20 years, at least 50 people, don't you think? He must have made a difference during that time, wouldn't you think? Wow. So how would the righteous people in this story be identified? I would suggest by leaving Sodom, you know, when they tell them to leave. I mean, that's going to be the, the key factor, right? You know, they probably didn't believe in the 2300 days because there wasn't 2300 days. And they probably, you know, there are a lot of things that we might think about that they probably didn't go into. They would heed and warn the leaving Sodom. Now, remember yesterday we talked about how the Babel kings had come and attacked the Pentapolis, these four Babel kings, and they'd taken Lot and his family prisoner, and how Abraham had rescued them up there at Dan, and how the, the I just think the people of Sodom knew that happened. They knew that Abraham had rescued them and delivered them from death and brought them back. When he stopped by there from Melchizedek, he doesn't take any of their spoils, pays tithe, and sends them back home. You would think they'd be pretty happy and impressed, wouldn't you? I mean, that, would be, that was a miracle, right? 318 men, and he defeated these four kings. You'd think this would be very miraculous in their minds. It had to have an impact. So Abraham thought at least 50, but just in case, maybe 45, maybe 40. How about 30, Lord? Maybe 20. And then what do you do? He comes all the way down to 10. It's called a minion. May the Lord not be angry, but let me just speak just one more time. What if only 10 can be found? By the way, that's what you need for Jews to meet in prayer. 10 men. A minion, right? That's where it comes from. Can we find 10 how many in Lot's family? Eight, six, four, how many? I don't, we don't know. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now Abraham's a great warrior and he, now we see he's an interceder. He's interceding for other people. And they go over. The two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1, there's our gate of the city. Babadrah, the gate of the arm, we've talked about that. Now originally Lot had pitched his tents near Sodom. Now he's living inside of Sodom. Although he has been compromised, he still has hospitality, right? He's kind of compromised his life, moved in with the Sodomites, 
but he still has hospitality. When he saw them, chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, he got up and ran to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. So he still has hospitality. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did not go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. He'd come into their house. They came into his house. So he's got that. As night fell, darkness emerged in the street and surrounded the house. The angels had to intervene. Although Lot's uncle had saved their lives, they don't care for Lot. They despised him. Who made you a ruler over us? We'll treat you like these men, right? Hmm. Get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner, Lot. And now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Some communities are hard to break into, aren't they? Been there 20 years, still a foreigner. They keep bringing pressure on Lot and move forward to break down the door. So they're totally unresponsive spiritually, aren't they? And God can ultimately do nothing else to reach these people. So he strikes them with blindness and they wander around. They can't get into the house. And now Lot is delivered by the very men he tried to protect with his hospitality. And they say, get your family and leave the city his sons-in-law thought he was joking, the Bible says, so they don't go. Does he have two daughters, four daughters? We really don't know. Sons-in-law kind of indicates that they're married. Some people think it's just maybe future sons-in-law. We don't know if he's got two or four. Now, this is a small but important city. We talked about this yesterday. It's on the spur of the trade route, 1,000 residents, 500,000 people buried there, 3 million pieces of pottery. Here we can see some of the pottery from that period. It's a land of abundance. I, I won't read this to you, take the time for that, but you can just see all the things that they were growing there. This is one of the wealthiest, most productive places on earth, okay? So it's hard to leave. Hard to leave. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Genesis 19, verse 15. Hmm. Angels had to pull them out of the city. Only four righteous are found because that's all that left. So what identifies them as righteous? The fact that they left, right? As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. Genesis 19, verse 15. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it, then my life will be spared. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So how terrible were the sins of Sodom? Hmm. Most important thing is they ignored the pleading of the Holy Spirit. Is that right? Holy Spirit is pleading for them. They've had evidence of Abraham saving them, not taking the money, delivering them, Lot living there. They don't, they don't buy into that. So God had to honor their choice and they're consumed. Now, I better go on before I say that. Notice Jesus applies the story. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. What does that mean? It would have remained to this day. Sorry? A lot more light there, and it wouldn't have been destroyed, perhaps? Hmm. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So we call it the evangelical triangle. We call it Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Jesus does most of his ministry in Galilee between those three towns. Boom, 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 like that. They're seeing all these miracles and all that, and yet they're ignoring the pleading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's going on there. But there's something about this. If they saw this, they would have lasted to this day. Hmm, interesting. So again, I'm going to point out the five ruins of the cities that we, we find over there archaeologically. Only Zora survived. We think it's Al-Safi. Now, Frederick Clapp identified these big fault lines. Can you see them on the screen? I tried to give you the little earthquake thing. Since I live in California, we have those little curvy lines. And it's on both sides of the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley are so earthquake-prone that there's a place called the Timna Mines. The Timna Mines in, uh, on the Israel side today, where they had copper veins, and a place called Punan on the Jordan side, and they have all these copper veins, and they're 60 miles apart today. So at one time, they were together, and now it's, it's moved that much. This is the deepest, longest fissure in the Earth's surface the Dead Sea Valley. It goes from Turkey all the way down to the Great Rift Valley of Kenya. So he looks at how they overthrew that. So Jack Donahue, does the fact that they're overthrown, overthrown, suggest it's an earthquake? Frederick Clapp suggests that, and then Donahue wonders, were there other things going on there for a natural disaster? So this is what Clapp wrote in the 1930s. There were deposits of bitumen, petroleum, natural gas, and sulfur in the area. He theorized that these combustibles pressurized and pushed up through the fault line during an earthquake, and they gushed out, ignited by a spark, and fell as fire. It's very interesting, in Babadraw, they found that the charnel houses where they prepared the dead burned from the roof down. Why would you burn cemeteries? Why would you burn it from the roof down? You know, where they go and set it from the roof up, right, or inside up. So could it be? Well, he's suggesting that, and then Donahue suggests that there were massive earthquakes when the cities were burned. That's what they've kind of theorized. Babadraw, I'm trying to show you this with, this is actually Numeria here. Babadraw is 94 feet higher on the one side of the wadi than the other side. So some terrific force of earth has caused it to move. Maybe this is what happened. Maybe it was just an angel doing it. I don't know. This is the wadi Karak, so it all goes all the way up there. Numeria, 164 feet. So something, we believe that's Gomorrah, by the way, something terrific has, has adjusted the geography of these places from the earthquakes. Now, Jesus compared the days before his second coming to two previous events. I want to, just to review this so we get a little bit of Jesus in here. Jesus' teachings in here, I should say. Luke chapter 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. What was their sin? Well, in this, this, this text here, what's their sin? They're eating and drinking? Marrying. Marrying, okay. Eating. But when you do all of these normal things, 
without giving countenance to your creator, that's a problem, isn't it? And so they're just kind of going, we could, we could say this is a good term for us as Adventists, right? A, a Laodicean way, a lukewarm way. You know, when you're hot, you turn, down the air, you turn the air conditioning down, right? You take off a, a shirt, you go for a swim. When you're cold, what do you do? You put on a jacket. When you're lukewarm, what do you do? You're just comfortable. Yes? In my opinion, is I would read it just that they're 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 going along in life without giving heed to their maker. Yeah. Is there a difference between marrying and giving in marriage? Is there is, should we we see something different in that that they're divorcing perhaps that they're taking multiple wives and so on? I think it's just a common thing, and, and this is where most of the world is just flowing down this very comfortable route of life without really giving thought to, to the Lord, you know. That's what I, I think. Yeah, I, I read it that way, that they're giving their, 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 their and, and celebrating their, their weddings. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. See, that's, it's just kind of these things, all, all normal life, and they're just kind of going along without listening to the Holy Spirit, without giving heed to their maker, right? But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Remember Lot's wife, one will be taken and one will be left. And you're probably confused, right? The disciples were confused when Jesus said this. They said, where? Right? Where? The ones who are left are all destroyed, right? Where are the ones taken? Right? So one group was taken out of Lot, out of Sodom, right? One group was taken onto the ark. One group's going to be taken to heaven. And the other's going to be left lost. So Jesus says, wherever there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And that's what we read in Revelation, right? The, the supper of the great God. So this is kind of tracking along with that. Only two groups of people. And that's what I think the Lord's trying to tell us about what was going on in Sodom in the days before the flood. There were two groups. One group was being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and listening. One group was not. They were just enjoying life and doing the things of life. One's taken and one's left. One's in the ark or out of Sodom. Those are left to destroyed. So what's the sin of Sodom? Well, here's a text. Ezekiel chapter 16. It's interesting when you read the actual text in the Bible, something different emerges about Sodom than what we hear on television. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Now this was a sin of your sister Sodom. Okay, well, we need to listen. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did, and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Go through this afternoon and just look at all the text in your concordance for Sodom. And it's over and over the same story. The only time it mentions anything sexual is in Genesis. Very interesting. Now, I want to put that up before I get the stones thrown at me or tomatoes. They didn't help the poor and the needy. Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, Jesus says the measure of the judgment is not did you believe certain things, it's how did you relate to your fellow human beings. Sorry, that's what, that's what he says the measure of the judgment is, right? When he separates the sheep from the goats, did you care for those in need? Did you minister to the poor? Did you help others? It's not what did you believe, 
How many fundamentals did you, and I believe in all these fundamentals and so on, by the way. It's all important because it helps us to live better lives. But if that's what we rest upon, we may come up short in the judgment. Because Jesus says it's going to be about how we relate to other people. And that seems to be what's going on back here in Solomon. They're, they're just carrying on their life and not participating in making a difference in the lives of other people. Well, enough preaching. Let me go on. We've talked about how that Babadra or Sodom was a wealthy city, small, about 1,000 people, not very big. Most of the people, by the way, don't live in the cities. The, it's the rulers, the, the big shop owners. They live in the city. The artisans are going to live outside the city and the farmers and so on. 500,000 people buried there. By the time we get to the time of Abraham, so by the time we get around 2100 BC, already 500,000 people have been buried there. Wow, pretty impressive. This is why the Babel kings came. Now, the Babel kings are coming over because they want a piece of the action. They want taxation. All these people are coming here, so they want to they colonize this. I told you about Punan a moment ago. Punan, they found 100,000 tons of slag for making copper. Huge. Very, the children of Israel passed by that. Very likely that's where the golden, the, the, the bronze serpent was made. So for 12 years, they paid taxes to the Babel kings. On the 13th year, they rebelled. On the 14th year, they sent an army to subdue them. That was what was going on when Lot was captured, right? They secured the copper mines at Punan. They, they secured all these cities down here. So let me ask this question. Two strangers come into town, and a guy from Mesopotamia, who had recently attacked them 14 years earlier, the Mesopotamians, invites these two strangers into his house, and they don't like the guy to start with because he's a foreigner. What do you think the people are thinking in the city? Are they spies? Are they coming back to attack us again? It's kind of a different wrinkle, isn't it? Lot's not light. Who made you a judge over us? We don't accept you. And now two strangers come in. Now, I believe Lot is just practicing hospitality out of the goodness of his heart because he's like his uncle Abraham, and that's what they did. But now you can see the fake news going out, can't you? Fake news. Lot's plotting with spies to overthrow us, people who want his business probably, or even suggesting such things. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how stuff can go unchecked? You know, the Internet was rife back then as well as it is today. Don't need the brother, just the gossip line, right? You can just see it going through the whole community, right? How do you check it? How do you fact check that, right? So they surrounded the house and they wanted to do what? To know them. Now I realize, Pastor Rick, that we use that term about Adam knew his wife and she bore a child and I never knew you. And so it certainly has that dimension, doesn't it? But I wonder if there's something else going on. Let's just suppose for a moment they've been attacked by people from Mesopotamia. Now, Lot is from Mesopotamia. He's a resident there. They don't trust him. They don't like him. Two spies, two people come in. He ushers them into his house, doesn't introduce them to anybody because he's afraid what might happen. So I asked the question, was it a sexual act going on or was it an interrogation? Just throwing it out there. I don't know the answer to it. As I thought about this, I wondered, what's going on with this? Same-sex gang rape is used as a form of terror and humiliation. They tell us that over 30% of the men and boys in the Syrian controversy that we just got done with 
for gang, male gang rape as a way of humiliating. Because they can't go home and tell their wives. If they do, their family's over. They tell us the same thing in the Congo. It's horrible. I hate to even bring it up. But I got to thinking about this. And is that what's going on here? Is this what's going on? They're trying to humiliate and torture them and so on. We want to, know, we want to torture and interrogate them. Or maybe it was just a total deviant society, but the fact that the Bible doesn't talk about it in other places leads me to wonder if maybe there's some other things, other factors going on. And the fact that Lot has this bizarre suggestion about his daughters implies that the men were not homosexual, but probably at least bisexual, right? Or he wouldn't be making the offer that we still scratch our heads about and wonder about and so on. And then over 30% of the men and boys who are victims in the Syrian conflict experience this. And by the way, America was not, was it Abel Gray? Where we did some pretty humiliating things to men as a way of trying to break them down and interrogate them. So I just wonder if there's a, a shade of this going on in the story. Well, this is the earliest map of the Bible lands. This is called the Madaba map. So if you can imagine you're a tourist back in the fifth century and you want to go to see the Bible lands, you don't have a map, don't have a GPS. So you go to this church in Madaba. It's, in, it's Mount, right by Mount, Mount Nebo. And you go there and they, they put this beautiful map in the floor. And here's a mosaic. You can see the big little circle there. That's Jerusalem. You can see the Dead Sea off in the distance, the Jordan River with the fish going one way and then turning and going the other way. Pretty cool map, right? You know where all these different things are? An earthquake comes in the ninth century and destroys the church. Rubble's on top of the church. And then there's Christians living down in, in Karak, and they get into a conflict with Muslims, and so they have to evacuate them from there. They let them go to live in Madaba. The Christians can't build new houses or new churches, but they can build the ruins of old things. So they go and they clean up the ruins at, at the church of St. George, that fifth century church. They scrape it, and lo and behold, they find the earliest map of the Bible lands. Isn't that cool? Now, in this earliest map of the Bible lands, we have Jerusalem, as I said, we have the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. And then when we come to the far end on the other side of the pillar, we have Zorah. We have Zor. So it lets us see where the 5th century Byzantine church understood Zor to be at the southeastern end of the Dead Sea, where we've been talking about at Babadron. Doesn't mean it's right, but that means that's what they believed in the 5th century Byzantine church, the early, early church, right? And so today it's called Al Safi. This is a picture of it. And in Jordan, very interesting. So it says in Genesis 18, verse 27, Early the next morning, Abram got up from him and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So again, as I said, from Hebron, you can look straight across and you can see that. He sees that coming up. Genesis 19, verse 30, Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he's afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. Now it's very interesting, you can see Zor there, and look what's just above it, you can see the six palm trees of Zor. Right above it is the monastery of St. Lot. Now so many things, archeologists didn't know where they were, and they've used the model map to find them. There's even a church in Jerusalem we didn't know about, and they used the model map to find it. Very interesting. So here is saying that there's actually it was a monastery that the early Byzantine church, that's like the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century church, had built. So some interesting people said, well, we're going to follow this, and we're going to go and look and see what's there. 
And lo and behold, when you come up above Safi today, they found the Monastery of St. Lot. Built in front of what the early church believed was a cave where my wife was standing, a cave that they kind of marked. Now, I don't believe it's that cave. I often say is it, you know, if you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 chairs in the front row, was it that chair you're sitting in? Or was it was the one you're sitting in? It was one of those chairs, right? So it was one of those caves right in that area, right? And at least they, they preserved this one. So here's the cave that the early church said is where Lot was living with his two, daughter, two daughters. So Lot has two sons, is that right? No. Or were they two we grandsons? Okay, so his first son is named Moab, right? His, Moab means from the father, remember? What was going on, I don't know. It was kind of a messed up family, wasn't it? Because here, take my daughters. By the way, let's have a couple minutes before I'm... Yeah, so by the way, it is very interesting. We've lived through the Afghanistan war now, right? And we've read stories and seen, I think there was a movie even about it, where a person was taken into an Afghani family, one of our soldiers who was wounded and so on, and they had to protect him with their life when the Taliban came, right? Because you come under my roof, I'm going to honor you with my, I'll, I'll be killed before I give you up. We don't, under, I don't understand that, you know. In America, we don't understand, but that's, that's life in that part of the world. So that kind of honor. Why he would go to the point of saying, I'll give you my daughters, I don't, I don't understand. Does that mess their minds up? I don't know what's going on. But you remember what the story says? They think the end of the world has come. So they have their father drink wine and they sleep with him on different nights and they become pregnant from their father. So he has sons that are also his grandsons, right? Because they're his daughter's incest, it's just strange. So Moab means from the father. The other one was named Ben-Ami, and it means son of my father. So the names are very, very specific about what had happened, right? Now it's very interesting, I just told you the story where the map was found, and it's called Madaba. It's a corruption of Moab, right? Second largest city of Jordan. Uh, today, and so it's Madaba or Moab. Of course, Ruth will come from there. King David will have a mother from a great grandmother from Moab. Very interesting. The capital today is called Ammon from Ammon, right? And the kingdom of Ammon, both of these emanating from Lot and his two daughters, Moab and Ammon, okay? So, one of the things I'm trying to say is everybody over there is related, right? They're all related. So, two stories. They both begin with angels, right? Angels came to visit Abraham. Angels came to visit Lot. Prospect of fatherhood in the story to Abraham and to Lot. But my goodness, what a difference between the two stories. One is sordid, filled with incest. One is happy, celebrating God's goodness in the life of Abraham. So the Holy Spirit appealed to Sodom and Lot's day. I believe that, don't you? Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit appealing to people today in our comfortable world? Of course. Appealing. The Holy Spirit appealed to Capernaum in Jesus' day. And yet Capernaum, with all of the evidence of seeing the miracles of Jesus, pushes it away, ignores it. The Holy Spirit appeals to us today. And we want to hear and respond to that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Thank you this afternoon we've had a time to examine these stories, to drift away to a faraway time and place and land, and boy, we're there. Confusing, strange, 
customs, things we don't understand. But we know, Holy Spirit, you're still trying to appeal to hearts like you did there in the days of Lot, days of Abraham, in our day. We pray for one another. We pray for our families, for our children. We pray for our communities. Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts. May they turn to know you. And I pray for this group that you help each of us to have a deep, rich relationship with you that we can walk with you like Abraham did long ago. Yes, he made his mistakes. He fell. He was wavering sometimes, but he learned to walk with you and talk with you and be your friend. And we want to have the same experience today. Through the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.